Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with me today is my friend and brother in Christ, Scott. Scott, welcome to the Equipping You Grace podcast. It's great to have you, brother. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, marriage, ministry, uh, what's happening at, you know, G3 Ministries and any ministry projects that you're, you know, you're working on personally? Yeah, so I'm uh, currently executive vice president and editor in chief of G3 Ministries. Uh, G3 started as a conference, and we still have regular conferences. But a couple of years ago, the ministry expanded to start publishing books and resources online, and so I was brought on to sort of help with that expansion. Um, and so I'm married to my wife Becky for almost 19 years. We've got four kids. Uh, ages 16 down to almost five in a couple of weeks. And uh, previous to serving here, I served on the faculty of Southwestern Baptist Seminary for 10 years. Uh, my primary area of research and teaching is in the realm of worship and music and culture and aesthetics. And so continuing to still kind of write and teach in those areas I'm also, I'm currently on faculty at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas as well. So I teach courses there kind of online and go for uh, intensive weeks and teach adjunctly at a couple other places as well. So uh, my, my, you know, projects and areas of research and writing continue to be kind of in the general area of, of worship and the arts, um, but doing a lot more now in my role here at G3. And so uh, excited to be a part of this as we expand in various ways with publishing and providing resources for local churches, in addition to continuing with National Conference, which is coming up September, and also uh, workshops in both expository preaching and worship, as well as regional conferences uh, kind of on the off year from our National Conference as well. So a lot going on, keeping very busy, uh, but thankful for the opportunity to to discuss my most recent book. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I just want to say, you know, uh, if you guys don't know about G3, you guys should definitely be checking that out. Uh, they have a lot of great podcasts and books. Of course, you guys graciously published The Word Matters. Yeah. And uh, it was such a joy and encouragement to work with you on that. And uh, I was I was greatly encouraged uh, in that. And so uh, you guys do great work. Um, good articles, too. So. Lots to lots to check out and benefit from from there. In addition to the to the conferences, so we got we got this book. Um, it'll come yep. out here uh, today. Uh, Musings on God's music, forming hearts of praise with the Psalms. Uh, can you tell us why you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received? Yeah. So um, there were sort of a number of factors contributed to uh, to my work on the Psalms. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I taught at Southwestern. I taught hymns and uh, um, courses in sort of congregational singing generally. So I would teach a little bit on the Psalms. 
um, and then had an opportunity to teach a couple seminars on the Psalms and sort of dug even deeper. And so that really opened up my love for the Psalms and my desire to see them sung. There, I, I, I wrote the book really primarily initially because I think in in most evangelical churches, most evangelical circles, we tend to ignore the Psalms. Um, maybe we gravitate towards a few like Psalm 100, Psalm 23. Uh, maybe we'll, you know, quote a phrase as a transition or, you know, or we'll use language from the Psalms perhaps, but uh, very few churches sing the Psalms, um, at least more than just a couple, certainly not all of them. And then even individual Christians, we tend not to, I think, understand the Psalms. And and I think that's also the reason that we we tend not to sing them. And so it was really my desire to help to encourage uh, the recovery of psalm singing. Really, for most of church history, Christians sang the psalms. And it really is only in recent sort of evangelical history that that we've replaced the psalms with hymn singing. And I'm not against hymn singing. I'm not against writing new hymns. I think that's the thing that we ought to be doing, but not to the neglect of psalm singing. And so I really wrote this uh, to to try to help to encourage Christians and their understanding of the Psalms as they seek to use them in their everyday lives, um, but also in the context of corporate worship. So this is this is not a technical book. This is not an academic book. It's really designed for the average Christian. I mean, certainly I think pastors, church leaders would definitely benefit from it, um, but it's intended for every Christian and try to help to, you know, most, most Christians who don't understand the, what's going on in the Psalms um, to give them that understanding. And uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, this will stimulate Psalm singing, that this will stimulate uh, Psalm usage um, and really just a, a, a robust understanding of God's intent for these 150 Psalms and how they've been intentionally organized and put into our Bibles as inspired scripture for the purpose of forming us as God intends. Mm, yeah, that's really good. I really, I really like how you just emphasized for the average Christian, because I, I do think that the average Christian, they don't understand how rich and how deep and how really much help there is in, in the Psalms and just you know, studying them myself over the last, you know, year or so, and uh, just really delving in. I mean, I knew that they, I took a class on this in seminary, so I knew a little bit about how helpful the Psalms would be, but just realizing even more as I've been studying them over the last year or so, just how helpful they are, how much they can help us on the character of God, obviously the personal work of Jesus, and and just a whole range of things that can help us with our prayer lives, it can help us with grief. It can help us with sorrow. Um, just, just a, it's a tremendous, it's tremendous and how rich it is. Yeah. Well, and there, there's been a, there's been a shift in even the scholarly world uh, in, in, on the issue of the Psalms in the last 20 years or so. Um, you know, for, for a, a long time, Psalm studies had been influenced by a couple of different factors that really made studying the Psalms primarily about two things. One kind of genre classification. So you would take a Psalm 
and various authors would have descriptions of of what you know the the kinds of genre that we find in the Psalter. And then you would basically classify the psalm, and that was supposed to somehow help us in interpreting and using the psalms. And it really didn't, um, I don't think, and it sort of sterilized the psalms, individualized the psalms. Mm. And then even in terms of the poetry of the psalms, uh, study of poetry in the psalms really became not much more than classifying Hebrew parallelism. So you read most books about the psalms, you know, prior to recent recent times actually uh they were mainly about genre classification and hebrew parallelism but in recent days there's been a shift in in psalm research um to really more of what even the early church fathers emphasized and that is the deliberate organization of the psalms into five books which many believers don't recognize as the case uh, most, I think most Christians view the Psalms and, and they think that, you know, here are a bunch of songs written by David and Asaph and Moses and Solomon and, and some other individuals. And somebody just kind of collect them all together, randomly put them into a book. And now that's what we have in the Psalms, which is not the case. Uh, what you find when you start to really study the, the Psalms is a very intentional arrangement and organization of the 150 psalms into five books with a very specific narrative uh and so the psalms were written by these individuals for you know specific reasons in their context but then later probably in the post-exilic period um you know either like someone like ezra or a group of scribes took these psalms i believe intended by God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and put them in a particular order as a way to really tell more of a, of a macro story mm. in the arrangement of the Psalms. And so there, there's been a lot of work done on this in the last 20 years or so, and a lot of more scholarly books that deal with the canonical arrangement of the Psalms. But there haven't been a whole lot of popular books, you know, again, for the average Christian that help to explain what this intentional organization is and then why is it organized that way and what is it supposed to do for us so that we can use the Psalms and really appreciate appreciate their richness. So that's what I really try to do in this book is to help to to explain some of what's happened in the scholarly wor world, but to put it, you know, at the level of where even someone who doesn't understand Hebrew, who's not a, you know, scholar, you know, scholarly academic can grasp the the purpose and power of the organization of the Psalms and then the poetry of the Psalms, which parallelism is part of what Hebrew poetry does, but there's so much more in uh in how the the poetry was written by these men um that again is meant to form us it's meant to communicate god's truth in significant ways that's different than prose different than a pauline epistle or a narrative and so again i just don't think a lot of christians understand that which has led to a neglect of the psalms and so my goal is to to help to bring some of that scholarly discussion down to where any Christian can really grasp it so that we understand how God intends for us to use the Psalms. Yeah. So as the average Christian is reading the the Psalms, what are what are some things that can help them to, you know, better read the, the Psalms? 
Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important uh, to recognize the significance and importance of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Those first two psalms are meant to go together, and there's several really clear evidences of that, not the least of which is that Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man, and Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who find refuge in the Lord. So there's a clear, what you, what we call inclusio, or bookend kind of organization. But there are other clues as well that these psalms were meant to go together. And the two psalms serve really as the foundational introduction to what the rest of the the book, you know, really the five books are supposed to do. So, um, you know, how I sort of describe it, and this is not uh, original with me, I think John Walton was the first one who described the the, the psalm as sort of a cantata, uh, where, you know, these psalms are, are individually written, but then they're organized intentionally into these movements, these five movements, and then Psalms 1 and 2 sort of serve as the prelude, the introduction. And so I would encourage, uh, first of all, Christians to really sink themselves into Psalms 1 and 2, because if you understand the foundational principles and themes that are introduced in Psalms 1 and 2, that then helps us to interpret and understand the purpose and intent of the rest of the Psalms. So uh, just real briefly, what th- some of the things to look for are, for example, that very first word in Psalm 1 indicates the goal and purpose of what the Psalms are intended to do. And that is to form a proper conception of what it means to be blessed by God. And especially in a world in which we've got unbelieving, uh, you know, images of blessedness that are competing against the biblical vision, uh, the Psalms are meant to form a proper image of blessedness within us. And it does that through developing some significant themes throughout the book, uh, including the idea of how to view wickedness around us. The presence of the wicked is prevalent through the 150 Psalms, but as Psalms 1 and 2 very clearly indicate right at the beginning is, yes, the the wicked are, are here, and it might even at times look like the wicked are prospering and being blessed, but ultimately the way of the wicked is, is destruction, and the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so understanding how that theme is developed is important. Um, And then the idea of the fact that the wicked individually and as nations, as Psalm 2 uh, points out, are rebelling against the Lord who is king and against his anointed, his Messiah, that theme is developed throughout the five books as well and really give a a proper interpretation to to what God is doing in history. And so recognizing that, again, these psalms were written by individuals in, in specific historic settings, but the Holy Spirit of God, working through these editors, arranged these individual psalms to tell this story about the outworking of God's plan, particularly an unfolding of the Davidic covenant, God's promises to David, who was, you know, really the first anointed king, that one day his seed would inherit the whole earth. And through that seed, the, the you know, all of God's people would be blessed. 
really this five movement cantata is developing and unfolding and showing God's work in how he is fulfilling that Davidic covenant in uh, in the history of humankind. And so, again, that's all introduced in Psalms 1 and 2 very significantly and importantly and intentionally. And so understanding those significant themes, and there are others, but understanding those themes helps us then to trace those themes through the five books and then better understand how those five books are developed and how they're meant to form our image of true prosperity and blessedness happily submitting to God and to his anointed as king. And so those those two psalms are very are, are critical. I spent a lot of time uh really in the first five chapters or so unpacking how those first two psalms set the trajectory for the rest of the Psalter. So I would just encourage um Christians to start there. Start in Psalms one and two and really get a grasp on what those two Psalms are introducing for the purpose of the entire Psalter. Yeah, that's really good. And you do a really good job in, in those first five chapters. Um, I especially liked, you know, how you're laying out, you know, not only how those passages are, how Psalm one and two are worked out in the rest of the Psalm, but, you know, in the whole Bible, I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Well, right. Cause that yeah. there are these themes again are about human history and about God's redemptive work in history, his intent to bless his people. And so it goes all the way back to the beginning and God's promises of blessing to Adam, Adam's failure in that, uh, the fact that God then chooses David to be his anointed through which these promises will be fulfilled. But of course, David fails, Solomon fails, all of his sons fail. And so it really then, of course, leads us to Jesus as the climax of those promises um, and I, you know, when we, by the time you get to the last five Psalms, which I argue are sort of a coda to the cantata, this is foreshadowing the future when wickedness will be destroyed, when Christ is reigning on his throne and all of his people are perfectly blessed, free now from wickedness, free from even sin within us so that we can, you know, have completely free and unbridled praise before the Lord, which is the goal. I mean, the the in Hebrew, the original title for the salt, the Psalter is Tehillim, which simply means praises. And so that's the goal. And and we know it's the goal because not all of the Psalms are praise. In fact, the the focus on praise really doesn't come until toward the end of, of book four. And so that helps us to, to grasp the, an understanding that the goal is praise. But in order to get to praise, you've got to go through other stages of at times lament and confession and then confident trust and thanksgiving. And then finally, we reach praise once we've progressed through that sort of formative path that the Psalter has created for us. For those unfamiliar with the the five books, could you just tell us where, you know, what the structure of that is? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in most in most editions of the Bible, uh, usually the, you know, whoever's publishing the, the, the Bible will will put in in there book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. So a lot of Christians maybe see that and don't really know what it what it's for. Um, or there's, there, there might be some editions that don't have that in there. But uh, 
after the two introductory Psalms, Psalm one and two, Psalms three through 41 is, is book two of the Psalm or is book one of the Psalms. And the, uh, I'll just kind of briefly summarize the the theme. I mean, I've got a chapter on each of these that kind of develops the progress of thought. But book one, every, every psalm in the in the book is written by David, and it really is sort of fleshing out the fact that God preserved his anointed one, David. So there's a lot of opposition. There are a lot of psalms of lament that lament the wickedness, those who are opposing David. And there are a lot of psalms of confession in which David is acknowledging that he is sinful. And yet what we find in this, in these first, you know, 40 psalms, 39 psalms, Psalm 3 through 41, is the fact that despite all of that, God still preserves David. He still keeps his covenant promises to David as the anointed one to where finally, when we get to Psalm 41, uh, there's this, there's this sort of confident expectation that God is going to keep his promise. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72, and it's very similar thematically to book one, except that it it changes to the plural. So it's not anymore just about David as an individual, but now it's about David as sort of the federal head or representative of the nation through whom God is going to, you know, through, you know, through him, God is going to bless the entire nation. And there's even a lot of focus in book two on the nations. In fact, there's a whole section in book two where the dominant title for God switches from Yahweh, which is the covenant title, you know, of God for his people to Elohim, which is a more generic word that even the pagan nations would use for their God. And so there's a shift to the nations and the fact that God preserves his royal line, even uh, even in the midst of national uh, oppression. And um, and you get to the, the final Psalm, Psalm 72, and it's a Psalm of Solomon. So now it's almost as if the promise is passing on to David's son, Solomon. And of course, it's under Solomon when when the nations do come and they they bow the knee to him, although he doesn't completely have the kind of dominion that God has promised. You kind of see it beginning in Solomon. And so that's how book two concludes. Book three is Psalms 73 through 89, and it's by far the darkest of the books. Um, there's a lot of lament. There's very little, you know, um, light uh, in book two. Um, and in fact, there's there are even psalms that have direct reference to the Babylonian exile. First, the destruction of, of the northern kingdom by Assyria, and then the destruction of the southern kingdom by Babylon. And so there's this there's this uncertainty in the third book. Is God going to keep his promise? Or is he now abandoning the promises that he made to David as his anointed one in the Davidic covenant? And so there's a lot of a lot of darkness uh, in the psalm, uh, and really it, it ends with an explicit 
question in Psalm 89, verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? So it's really asking the question, are you going to keep your promises or are you abandoning David? So there's an uncertainty. And if you put your if you put your, your yourself in the place of the Hebrews in exile, you, you can see how they would have wondered this. There's no Davidic king on the throne. And even when they return from exile and now they're back in their land, they're still surrounded by enemies. There's no son of David on the throne. They're just a sort of a, you know, a a territory of Persia still. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And this is one of the areas where there's a lot of applicability even for us today, because in many respects, we are in a very similar situation to Israel both in exile and having just recently returned from exile. We uh, we have a lot of promises given to us about the coming of coming of the Messiah, and yet he's not here yet, and wickedness is flourishing around us. Lord, are you going to keep your promises? And so there's, there's a lot of, of application. Book four then begins to answer the question. It begins to provide the solution. And it does so in, in many different ways, not the least of which it begins with the oldest psalm, Psalm 90, written by Moses. And Moses is a, a feature in book four. He appears several different times. Because if you remember, even in Israel's life, Moses served as an intercessor when the people were sinning and deserving of punishment. It was Moses who went before the Lord and really stayed the Lord's hand. And so Moses sort of serves that function in book four. David is never mentioned in book four, although he has a couple psalms. And so what we find in book in book four is really a, a providing of the solution. No, God is going to keep his promises, but not because David was perfect, because he wasn't, not because Solomon was perfect, because he wasn't. God is going to keep his promises because, number one, God's steadfast love endures forever. He's faithful, and he will keep the promises that he makes. And number two, there's a strong emphasis in book four about the fact that Yahweh reigns. God is always still on his throne, even if David fails, even if Solomon fails, even if the people are taken into exile, even if it appears that the wicked are flourishing, God is always on his throne. And so those themes are developed until finally, toward the end of book four, Psalm 104, the last verse is the first time in the entire Psalter that we find the word hallelujah which is a word that means praise the Lord. Hallel means praise. Yah is Yahweh. And so now we're finally coming out of the darkness of book three. We're reaffirming those foundational principles about the fact that the Lord reigns. He has determined the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. And this admonition that we, if, if we find our refuge in him, we will experience blessedness and praise. So that then moves into book five, which is Psalms 107 through, through 145, really. The last five Psalms are kind of the coda. And we find then this foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah, uh, one who is both a son of David, but also who is one who is Yahweh himself. Well, how is that possible? Well, of course, we know that that comes to fruition in the person and work of Jesus, Jesus Christ, one who is God, but who also is a descendant of David. And so we see very key messianic psalms in book five, a sort of development of this idea of the fact that the Lord reigns, his steadfast love endures forever, moving to then 
the climax of the last five Psalms, Psalm 146 to the end, in which there's just this sort of climax of praise, this crescendo of praise, until finally you get to the last Psalm, Psalm 150, and literally every line of the Psalm begins with, you know, Hallel, praise the Lord, and there's no wickedness and there's no sin. And again, that's that's foreshadowing the day when Christ will come again and we will forever be freed from the very presence and power of sin. So that's kind of a, a quick run through of the development. There's a lot of lot more that I flesh out in the book, and there's even a lot more that I don't flesh out uh, of really the beauty of how these Psalms are structured. And really, my goal is, and, I, and we're we're actually teaching through this material right now in our church. And I've told the people, you know, my my hope for them is what I do. Like if I'm in a worship service and a particular psalm is read in the service, I am to where that psalm fit, and that adds a whole depth and richness as I listen to that psalm being read or as I sing that psalm. I recognize, yeah, that psalm individually is a beautiful, inspired work of poetry that has spiritual benefit, but understanding how it fits in that overall narrative of the five books, uh, again, just expands the richness and the benefit for shaping our souls uh, toward a life of blessedness and a life of praise to the Lord. Wonderful, brother. Really, really well said. You know, you were talking earlier about Psalm 1, and, you know, in Psalm 1, we we see the language of delight and everything. And I think there's a—I think this, in my estimation, this understanding what that delight means, it can help with a whole host of things, especially with Bible reading and all of that. So how vital is it that Christians have a biblical understanding of delight, and how should that understanding affect our Christian life? Yeah, I mean that's a key a key word there uh, in Psalm one, and in particular, an, you know, another major theme that's really important is this idea of delight in the law, the Torah of the Lord. It's God's word. It's God's law uh, in which we delight, and that's so important because you know I think you're right. There, there's a lot of talk today about emotion, about expression in worship, and all these sorts of things, and a lot of confusion. Uh, and, and often what ends up happening is we have an improper view of emotion and joy and praise <clears throat> to the degree that we end up we end up artificially stimulating sort of these feelings that we believe to be, you know, true praise and 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 true delight in the Lord. What the Psalms help us with is understanding the fact that the, the kind of joy and praise that the Psalms express cannot be artificially manipulated. And in fact, you have to go through the lament and confession and trust and thanksgiving before you can actually get to the praise. We are delighting in the law of the Lord. We're not just artificially stimulating some sort of feelings. And again, I think that that's one of the great benefits of the of the Psalms. They don't ignore the reality of sin and wickedness in the world. I think a lot of you know a lot of pop music does this, and a lot of Christian pop music does this, where we're just sort of we we want to we want we don't want to have to acknowledge our own sin or the wickedness around us. We just want to escape that and sort of you know artificially work ourselves up into these feelings of of, of happiness. And what the Psalms model for us and do for us is they produce a true inner joy and peace within us, but it takes work. It's not art, it cannot be artificially stimulated. It's not immediate. 
it takes an intentional, as Psalm 1-2 says, meditation on the law of the Lord. And significantly, that word meditation there is a word that literally means to muse, to muse on the music of God's word. When we, when we, when we muse on God's music, including an acknowledgement of sin, a confession of our own sin, a, an affirmation of who God is and, and a, you know, a, an expression of thanksgiving and trust in him, that then produces a deeply rooted joy in God and praise for God that, that is sustained even when we experience attacks from without and even our own sin within. If we just artificially work up some feelings, well, those fade away real quickly. You know, I think of, of Jesus's parable of the soils. You know, this is the seed that just kind of takes shallow root, springs up real quickly. There's sort of this immediate joy. But as soon as the sun rises, as soon as the thorns and thistles begin to attack, the, those plants wither away. That's that's what a lot of modern worship music does. You know, it's it's really flashy and it makes us feel good for a while, but it has no roots. Whereas what the Psalms model for us is the fact that when we delight in the law of the Lord and we muse on God's music and we allow his, his image of blessedness to be formed within us by his word, that creates a deeply seated joy that will withstand and endure under the, the attacks, Satan's attacks, the world's attacks, and even when we stumble into sin. And so that's that's another major theme that's critically important for understanding and using the Psalms. Yeah, that's really good. Um, how and you mm -hmm. kind of were just touching on this, but how serious is the challenge to psalm singing from contemporary Christian music, Bethel, Elevation, Hillsong, you know, you name it. What yeah. can we do about that? And I know that you're very passionate about this question. I know you yeah. spend a long time talking about it. Yeah, and actually, I mean, this is this is another reason that I really began to to grow, you know, to love the Psalms and and decided I wanted to teach and write and speak on the Psalms because they really pr provide an antidote to much of the modern contemporary Pentecostalized worship that we see out there today. You know, all those groups that you mentioned, most of contemporary worship today has been highly influenced by a Pentecostal charismatic theology of worship in which we've come to define worship and the presence of God in terms of physical experiences and feelings. And we've come to see music as then the means by which we experience the presence of God. And so groups like that intentionally want music that is immediate that that you know titillates the senses that creates an immediate gratification that stimulates artificially these feelings uh because they believe that that's true spirituality that that's what worship is that's what true praise is that's what the presence of god is um but i would argue that that's a faulty understanding of the nature of the presence of god and of worship and you know, there's a lot I could say there that I won't get into at this point, but the Psalms help to provide the antidote because, you know, believers who have a diet of that Pentecostalized, um, immediately gratifying kind of contemporary worship music, when they look at most of the Psalms, it's like a foreign language. Um, they don't like the Psalms. The Psalms are too much work. The Psalms are too dour. 
know, what's all this discussion of the wicked and 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 the you know and and the sin? You know, maybe they'll gravitate towards the psalms of praise. But even there, a lot of the psalms of praise are just too long. There's too much doctrine in them. We want quick, easy, you know, uh, language. We don't want to have to intellectually think about what we're singing. We just want immediate gratification. Some, you know, I call them happy, clappy songs, you know, that that just immediately gratify, but don't actually create that sort of deeply, deeply rooted joy and praise that I was talking about a moment ago. So this is all the more reason that we ought to be singing the Psalms. If the, if, if, if you read or sing the Psalms and they seem foreign to you, they seem like another language, that's a problem. That means your regular diet, what's become natural for you, if it doesn't match scripture, there's a problem. So we need to go back to the Psalms. You know, again, I'm not a, I'm not an exclusive Psalm, you know, Psalm, Psalmist. I don't, I don't believe that we only can sing the Psalms. However, if, if we've become so accustomed to a, the immediate gratification of Pentecostalized contemporary worship, it may be worth you know, removing ourselves from all of that for a while and just singing the Psalms for a while. And again, allowing the Psalms, the language of the Psalms, the poetry of the Psalms, the structure of the Psalms, the theology of the Psalms to reshape our expectations about what worship really ought to be. And then once we've allowed the language of the Psalms to reshape us again, then maybe we can then add you know, additional additional hymns, but even the new hymns that we sing and write need to be of the same quality and character and richness and depth of the Psalms. The Psalms ought to be our model for, for the kinds of hymns we ought to, we ought to be singing. So I, I see a big problem with, with what, you know, kind of the Hillsong, Bethel, Pentecostalized, and, and even beyond that, I mean, most, again, most of contemporary worship has been influenced in this way. And I see the Psalms as a great antidote to a lot of those problems. I think uh, one thing that you're, what I'm hearing and you're, and you're drawing out is, is our, even our emotional life should be regulated, we would say, um, under the authority and sufficiency of God's word, rather than Absolutely. Our emotions being regulated by scripture. And yeah. That, that obviously is a huge problem in the church as well. Which right. Psalms help. Yeah. Which the Psalms help us with. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. And this is a big emphasis that I make really early on in the book too. You know, we we tend to view worship music generally, and then the Psalms specifically, as something that just gives us language for the authentic expression of our hearts. So we we think that whatever we're feeling is good just by virtue of its existence. And music just give just allows us to express that. Well, the problem there is that uh, often our feelings are wrong. Often our feelings are immature. Often our feelings are in need of reform, in need of sanctification. We can't just assume that because I feel something toward God that it's good and appropriate and right. No, we need something that, like you mentioned, will regulate our feelings, will shape our feelings. And that's like with every aspect of our theology and practice, that's the word of God. The word of God, we rightly, you know, even conservative evangelicals believe that the word of God ought to regulate our theology and the word of God ought to regulate our lives. But for some reason, we don't think it ought to regulate our worship and especially our emotions. No, the word of God ought to regulate it all. And God has given us poetry 
particularly the Psalms, but of course there's other poetry in scripture because poetry uh, shapes our, our hearts, shapes our imagination of who God is and therefore our responses to God. And so, yes, absolutely. The Psalms help to regulate certainly our theology, but mm. but not in the same way that like a Pauline epistle does. A Pauline epistle, you know, lays out theology in far more of a didactic intellectual way. The Psalms don't do that. Uh, the Psalms do regulate our lives, but not in the same way, for example, as the law or the prophets, you know, which tell us what the Lord wants us to do. Psalms do that a little bit, but not not much. The primary aspect of who we are as Christians that the Psalms are meant to shape are our hearts, the way that we express to the Lord as we understand truth about him and as we move towards living for him. So that's why God has given us poetry. Poetry is necessary. Song is necessary. Art is necessary. Imagery is necessary because that's what shapes our uh, and shapes and regulates our, our emotions uh, to use sort of a, uh, a new, a newer anachronistic word. Yeah, that's really good. I think this uh, next question is really, really important because I think understanding biblical wisdom and understanding helps us to be discerning, which I think is really at the heart of what we're kind of talking about with souls or the law of the prophets. Wisdom is is the the virtue of being able to see how that understanding and knowledge properly fits together. So we we gain knowledge from the word of God about God, about ourselves, about the world, about sin, about salvation. But all but that knowledge in and of itself is insufficient to lead us to be God's people and to be God's people who are blessed and who flourish. We need wisdom to be able to connect the dots. So an illustration that I that I like to use that articulates the difference between wisdom and knowledge or understanding is that understanding is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Hmm. But wisdom is knowing that a tomato does not belong, does not fit in a fruit salad. So, there, so there's there's a different, you know, this is a, a silly illustration, but it, it illustrates the difference between the two. What what the Psalms do for us is that they form wisdom within us, because the formation of wisdom is not just an intellectual thing. Hmm. Uh, you don't get wisdom just by gaining more understanding. Wisdom is something different. You do need the understanding. You need the doctrine. You need the theology. You need the information. But wisdom is formed within us when, when our, you know, I use the word and I, I define it because it's often misunderstood in the book, when our imaginations are shaped and, and our imagination, all that, all that means is sort of the lenses through which we interpret the information. So we have all this information about God and sin, flourishing and blessing. And so, so the information, the, the, the difference between these two groups is not a lack of information, but rather a, a wrong interpretation, a wrong imagination of the information. And that is because of a lack of wisdom when it comes to people who are wicked. Mm, really well said, brother. 
Well, where can people go to find out more about you on social media? I know you have a podcast, you know, tell us about some of the G3 podcasts. Yeah. So I, I'd encourage people to go to g3min.org. That's where they can buy this book. Uh, that's where I've got other articles and resources. I blog there on on g3min.org. And like you mentioned earlier, there's podcasts. They, they can actually get to my podcast there. My podcast is called By the Waters of Babylon. And uh, so that's that's mine. We got a G3 podcast. Virgil Walker and I do another podcast. So there's a lot of podcast resources there. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, Scott Annual, Instagram. I uh, love to interact with people there. Um, so it's not, but, but if really, if you go to g3men.org and you find kind of my bio page under the about section that links to all the social media, links to the blog, it links, links to the podcast. So that's the easiest kind of one stop place to be able to, you know, find my resources and things, um, across the interwebs. Yeah. Well, one last question, just as we wrap up, you know, there's always a lot that, to say about these things, you've really only scratched the surface. So just as we wrap up for those who listen and watch the show, can you give us a few takeaways? Yeah, well, uh, the the main kind of takeaway that I want people to get from the book is that, you know, contrary to, I think, what is the natural default way of thinking for most Christians, God has not given us the Psalms merely to kind of find a mood that gives language to whatever we're feeling right now, but rather God has given us the Psalms to form us. And if we approach the Psalms in that way, if we recognize the formative purpose of the Psalms, then that then we'll really approach the Psalms far differently. Um, we'll, we'll be willing to work. You know, some of the Psalms might be foreign to us, might seem uncomfortable, but we what we'll recognize this is God's inspired word and we need this. So really the biggest takeaway that I would you know want people to take from this discussion and from the book itself, which I would obviously encourage people to, to go order the book, um, is, is to recognize the formative purpose of the Psalms and then use a book like this to give the tools to help us recognize how that formation is supposed to be occurring so that as we read the Psalms, as we meditate upon the Psalms, and hopefully as we sing the Psalms in individual worship, family worship, and corporate worship, then these God-inspired Psalms will form us to have a proper image of blessedness, happily submitting to the rule of God so that we will flourish under his rule as he has intended. Well, brother, uh, I just want to say thank you for your time today. It's been very insightful and very helpful. And guys, uh, Scott's book is called Musings on God's Music, Forming Hearts of Praise with the Psalms. It is very helpful. He is, if you're watching the video, uh, he is holding it up. And uh, it is hot, very, off, hot off the presses. Hot off the presses. I don't even have a copy yet, but hopefully here soon. But <laughs> it is very helpful, easy to read. Um, it is full of, you know, lots of help that you will, you'll find incredible help, whether you're, you know, wondering what the Psalms are all about, or, you know, you're preaching, teaching through the Psalms, or, you know, you're just wanting to dig a little deeper into the Psalms. This, this book will help you. So I, I encourage you guys to, to pick it up. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks thanks Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, 
and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.